Hi, this is Joe Shannon. I'm a lawyer, a husband, a father of six kids, and I also uh, host a podcast called Opening Statement with Joe Shannon. Please consider listening to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple, and any other folks that host podcasts. Just Google Joe Shannon and podcast and you'll find it. I hope you enjoyed the show. So, hey, I am really pumped, excited, just really, this is going to be one cool interview, folks. Hold <laughs> on. We got Chef Michael Fenster, who's also a doctor. So I was looking through his, all of his his titles he's an md f-a-c-c f-c f-s-c-a-n-i p-m-b-a all these different things which i don't know but i'm gonna and he he likes to be called chef dr mike is that okay yeah that's great that's great i get called a lot of things as long as i'm not called late for dinner i'm okay (laughs) there you go um so i'm gonna read a little bit of this it's okay just people have the background Sure. America's only board-certified intervention cardiologist and professional chef. He currently holds appointments, uh, faculty appointments at the Kansas Health Science Center, uh, West Virginia University School of Medicine, and cross-faculty appointments at the University of Montana College of Health School of Public Health and Missoula College Culinary Arts Program. Currently teaches one of the country's leading courses on culinary medicine at the University of Montana, he also serves on the editorial board of the academic journal, the Journal of Integrative, Integrative Cardiology. I don't know if I said that right. But anyway, <laughs> really excited um, for a number of reasons, as we talked about, um, to meet you. So welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, so I'm in suburban Chicago. Um, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a kid that grew up in Yakima, Washington. So kind of the Montana experience. Um, and we, you know, when I found out that we were going to do the show, I was like, okay, this guy hits all the different things I like. My brother, <laughs> a country doctor up in this place called Colville, Washington. I don't know if you know what that is. It's up in the Northeast corner, North Spokane. My wife is, I think she's one of the best chefs in the country because I eat her food all the time and my 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 daughter's going to medical school so I got all these questions for you are you ready I'm ready let's rock and roll all right so tell me where are you from where'd you grow up I was actually born in South Bronx like if you ever remember that old movie uh, Fort Apache the Bronx yeah that's that's I'm a native New Yorker so that's where uh, I was born and like everybody you know in in New York City uh, you eventually move out. If if you're in Brooklyn, you move to the island. If you're uh, in the Bronx, you move to Jersey. So I grew up in the Northeast. Um, and then I went south. I went to the University of Virginia for college and essentially stayed south uh, for many years, uh, like all good New Yorkers eventually winding up in Florida. And uh, there, we actually worked at a hospital that gave us a TV show, a local cooking show, which was like, it was the funniest cooking show on television because it was so bad. 
Uh, I knew nothing about TV at the time. It was like Wayne's World. It was like cooking with Wayne's World. I mean, the microphones were swinging in front, you know, swing. Uh, so it was it was totally hilarious. Um, but as well, I got- hold on a second. How, how do we get into, so, you, so basically you're, you're a chef, but you're also a doctor, which came first? Uh, actually, the chef part came first. So uh, my mom, like your wife, was a, a great home cook. And we moved around a lot when I was growing up. So back then there was no internet and I was always kind of the new kid. Uh, so the kitchen became kind of a sanctuary for me. So I loved cooking. I would, you know, fake that I was sick to stay home with my mom, watch Julia Child on TV, go into the kitchen, you know, and cook. I remember Graham Care, the Galloping Gourmet. Uh, we had all those cookbooks. So the kitchen kind of became, you know, a real sanctuary for me. And I loved sort of the science of cooking. I've always loved the sciences. I love the art of cooking. Um, and when I was in college to, you know, help pay to go to college, uh, I had to take a job. And so I started actually as a dishwasher. Uh, back then, nobody wanted to do uh, food. There, there was nothing glamorous about it. Right? You were working uh, Friday, Saturday nights when all your friends were out. Um, you got off at 2 a.m. smelling like dishwater. All your friends had already, you know, finished for the evening. Um, but I eventually worked my way up to executive chef. I later went on to go back to culinary school and get a degree. So I've always had a passion about uh, food. Um, and so the chefiness uh, part of me actually came before the medical school part. So, so let's, let's map that out. So when you were in high school, uh, were you thinking, hey, I'm going to be a chef? No, uh, I, I think I always wanted to explore the medicine uh, aspect of it. And so for me, cooking and the kitchen was always sort of a sanctuary. I never really thought of it as a uh, you know, professional vocation. I was always really interested in medicine and the sciences and physics. My dad's a chemist. Uh, he's a PhD in chemistry. He's a very successful business person. So I always kind of had that that leaning that, you know, I wanted to explore that. Um, I'm an, as you mentioned, I'm an interventional cardiologist, which I absolutely loved uh, doing. And, and I still do um, because I love that kind of the, the physics and um, the getting in there and, and helping people. So for those that don't know, an interventional cardiologist, we're the guys when somebody's having a heart attack at 2 a.m., we get called, we go in, we put the stents in, we open those arteries back up. So, so that's what a what I do for my day job, as it were. You know what? I'm blown away here because, you know, usually that's somebody's full-time, all-the-time job. And you're, and you're basically saying that's my side gig. <laughs> well, I worked pretty hard to get that side gig. So, um, well, so, yeah, tell me about that. So tell me about the medical school. So you got, you got your, your, you know, your, basically your chops on, on, the, on the cooking side, yeah. on the chef side. And then what made the decision to go, hey, listen, I'm going to go to med school. Well, when I went to college, I mean, that was kind of the plan. So, you know, you walk in um, like most pre-med people do, you know, in a huge auditorium of, you know, six, 800 people. And then by the time you get through organic chemistry, it's weeded out, you know, to a handful of people who survive organic chemistry uh, and then physics. And uh, then you, you apply. So I always had that focus, um, which I, I really attribute. Um, I really liked, uh, did a lot of sports growing up. And growing up, I, uh, apparently I thought I was a much better athlete than I actually was. Uh, so I took, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, torn ligaments, broken bones, things like that. 
which actually led me to pursue martial arts, uh, which I've done and still do for many decades. And so what I really learned in martial arts was a lot of focus, you know, how to, how to self-discipline. Um, which I, I think would go a long way today uh, in a lot of areas. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, when I set my mind to, hey, that challenge of getting through the prerequisites, getting into medical school, which I'm sure your daughter can appreciate, you know, that's, uh, that was a task. So, so I, I had my focus, I had my eye on that prize going into college. Um, the great thing about cooking was, while you're doing all those hard things, like, um, you know, the, the, the physics and the classes and whatnot, going into the kitchen and work was, was actually fun for me. You know, that was, that was my fun time, was, was going into the kitchen, learning the techniques, cooking the food, you know, work until two o'clock in the morning. Absolutely loved it. Still do. So it was like a stress reliever for you. Yeah, you know, I think because of the the way I grew up, the the kitchen has always been my sanctuary. So it was a time when, you know, I put the books aside and, you know, I just delved into it. And, you know, it's hard work um, in in a very different way than being a physician or, you know, being a student, a full-time student is. Uh, But it was great. And I I loved it. and And I still love getting in the kitchen. So how long have you been a doctor? Uh, several decades. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so um, longer than that. Yeah. And, and I've been a, a chef. So yeah, I've been cooking professionally before I was a physician. Uh, we had a restaurant and now I, what I really enjoy is bringing both those passions together in helping people explore culinary medicine in which from a chef's perspective, don't even think about the nutrition, just think about having a delicious meal, a great food experience. That's what a chef brings to the table. Um, this podcast will be loaded with bad puns, by the way, disclaimer. And then from the, um, you know, from the medical side, we want to eat those foods, you know, that sustain us. So culinary medicine, you know, is, is all about feeding the body, but also feeding your soul. And as we're learning in medicine, all these things that I call the softer edges. So when we eat, how we eat, with whom we eat, our attitudes when we eat, all these things end up having huge long-term implications, you know, in our health. Um, and a very simple example is depression. Right? We know that depression affects the immune system. Well, the immune system therefore then affects the gut bacteria. By affecting the gut bacteria, we make ourselves more susceptible to chronic inflammation, which leads to diseases like diabetes, heart disease, uh, you know, the inflammatory bowel diseases, et cetera. So all these things we're starting to learn are linked. And there was a great study uh, done out of Harvard. It was actually two studies, the Grant and the Gluick study called the Harvard Happiness Study when you put them together. And long story short, what they did was they looked at people over a lifetime, over 75 years, so generations. And the question they asked was, what is it that separates people out who live a healthy life, a long life, uh, they, they feel good, um, et cetera, versus people who don't? Is it the amount of money? Is it your job? Is it your education, uh, et cetera? And what they found is that it's the quality of relationships, healthy, quality relationships, not quantity. So it's not Facebook likes. It's, it's the quality of those relationships that end up determining um, how healthy and happy we are and how long we live. And 
and, and so on. And so in culinary medicine, one of the most important relationships, obviously I'm biased, that I think we have is our relationship with food. For the history of humankind, our interaction with food has been a social currency for interaction with each other. And, and therefore the, the basis of, of relationships. And I guess you could hear in my story, you know, food was uh, a big part of my relationship with my mom, you know, growing up. So, it, you know, it's, it's really has, has shaped my world. Now, tell me about your mom. What's, what's her story? Is she still in the Bronx? No, uh, my mom passed away a number of years ago from uh, gastric carcinoma, uh, which is, was pretty tough because I had just finished medical school and uh, she was diagnosed with gastric carcinoma a month after I graduated from medical school. So I was doing my internship, you know, while tr trying to visit my mom while she was getting, you know, chemotherapy and things like that. So uh, she ended up, you know, passing away from that. Um, you know, she had smoked cigarettes as many people did, you know, back in, in those days, which was also kind of a likely contributor, um, you know, to, to what happened. So uh, she was a, a huge impact, you know, in my life, uh, still is, um, because of her love of food, her passion of food. Uh, that's something we shared. So that's, again, you know, that relationship I had with my mom in the kitchens. I can remember her teaching me to make omelets and, and like I said, this and that and the, and the cookbooks. And, uh, and, you know, I think in retrospect, she knew some of those days I was home on the couch watching Jewel Child. I wasn't really all that sick, but she let it slide anyway. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, I've got six kids and, and um, you know, one of the, the blessings I think um, for them is they have my wife, Michelle, who is, like I said, so I'm 100% Irish, uh, roots from Montana, you know, the Butte, Montana, the biggest yep. hole on earth and uh, big Irish American <laughs> experience there. And we ate a lot of canned foods and we ate a lot of uh, meat and potatoes, that type of thing. And then when I got married, so I met her in law school, we got married, I was introduced to this whole Italian world, which, you know, growing up in New York, you understand yep. it. The food was just so amazing. It was like stuff that it was like a symphony and I was like enjoying the symphony every night and but my kids <laughs> have that relationship with their mother where they learn to they, you know that it's not only just the meal it's the worrying about the preparation for the meal worrying about what the guests are, are going to be like when they come in you know considering everything and that's what breaks into that relationship thing you're talking about yeah. is the quality of our relationships I write about that a lot I write about that the rich man and rich woman is the one that has deep quality relationships with people. And that food thing you're talking about, you got something there. Yeah, I, I think, you know, if you look at the, the history, I always like to say the history of food is the history of humankind. And for so many uh, decades, until really probably the 1940s and 1950s, uh, you know, when the food pathways uh, led by the United States changed so dramatically, you know, food was sent, wars were fought over control of food. Um, you know, people wanted land and on that land, they, they grew food, they raised animals. Um, so even today, I think that is still, you know, food is a very strong, uh, as I like to call it, a social currency. So it really, it not only is a big business, unfortunately, in some ways, um, 
but it's really central to our relationships. And when we think about it, you know, if you talk to, for example, relationship therapists, they'll tell you, you know, the romantic dinner is still, you know, one of their tricks of the trade. And we often talk about having a business dinner and it's that experience when things, the, the walls go down and we break bread and we share and all of a sudden we're not, you know, two faces, um, you know, across the internet. We're not connected by an e email. We have a shared experience. Um, and I think what's really cool about food is you and I could sit down to the same meal um, we share the experience, but the meal can be totally different to each of us, right? So it's, it's again, that relationship with food really, to me, reflects our relationship with the world at, at large because it's our personal reality that creates it. So that meal is what you make of it. Your world is what you make of it. The challenges in front of us, um, they can either get you down. You say, oh, this is awful. I'm not eating this, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or you could say, hey, um, you know, I noticed these subtle flavors here and it's different and I might not have it again. Um, you know, like I was watching some, I was watching the food shows and I was watching a, a Japanese food, which I love, uh, haven't done martial arts and, you know, I'm not a big fan of natto. Uh, I've tried it, you know, I would have it again. It's a fermented, a, like a soybean fermented deal. Um, but I appreciate it, you know, and I appreciate that experience and I'm grateful for the experience. So when we view, I think, food in that context, in what I call the food experience, and in the context of a relationship, then we can start to heal ourselves with the foods we eat. And when we heal ourselves, we can start to heal those around us. And, you know, you know everybody did that, the world's a better place. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm really curious. Um, so you obviously got a lot going on with the media now. Um, you're on, you, you've got radio shows, you've got all this type of stuff. And so you're trying to share this message. Um, have you put have you put it down on paper for a book yet? Yeah. So uh, I got actually four books uh, out. So the first one was kind of a collection of little vignettes, uh, kind of short thoughts, uh, some recipes in there. Eat, that's called Eating While Living Better. Uh, the next book was called The Fallacy of the Calorie. Uh, it's really one of the foundation stones for the course we teach on culinary medicine. So it really looks at a lot of the, the myths um, and that, that still permeate our perceptions and teachings in terms of food and health. The idea that you need to watch the calories you're eating. I mean, calories have nothing to do really with our impact. Uh, it, to me, it's much the same as saying that you were gonna you know, grade the quality of your automobile simply by the miles per gallon it gets, which actually bears no relationship to what they tell you, right? So it's dependent on a lot of other things. So that kind of explores that. Then I did a book called Ancient Eats, which looked at, and, and if your wife has those Mediterranean roots, she'd probably enjoy, really looks at the diets of the ancient classical Greeks, which is the first Mediterranean diet, and the Vikings, which is, we would think in our minds a very diametrically opposed a diet in terms of its ingredients. But what we find is when we look historically at foods and we look at cultures that have made an impact in the world, so Egyptians, uh, the Mayans, um, the Chinese, uh, Indians, the Vikings, the ancient Greeks, so on and so forth. Uh, what we find at the base of that is a very rich food culture because if you're not feeding your body, you can't feed your mind and develop 
these uh, cultural things, whether it's the conquest of the Vikings or whether it's the philosophy of the Greeks. So it kind of looks at those diets and what lessons, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we can take away from that in our modern times. My most recent book is A Food Shaman, which again builds on fallacy of the calorie and, and is one of the staples for the class that we teach in culinary medicine. And as I alluded to earlier, really looks at some of these softer edges. So how does this food experience, you know, impact our health? And we talked about, uh, you know, our attitude, right? So depression can negatively affect your response to food in the same way that what studies have shown is that the act of ritual, so whether you want to say grace before you eat, whether you want to take a, a moment and give thanks to the produce and the animals that gave their lives, whatever it is in, in front of you. But when we sort of shift our gears and change our neurochemistry, that actually ends up having a positive effect in that we can measure in looking at reduced markers of inflammation in our bodies. And, and it makes sense. I mean, if we think about it, if, we, if I give you a great, wholesome, authentic meal, but I made you eat it in five minutes in front of a computer while you're getting ready for you know, that next meeting, the boss is over here, you're stressed out. The effect that, of that food on your body is very different than when you have you know, uh, that same meal prepared by your wife at home and, and just you two having a romantic dinner. Right. And, you know, we have a tradition of, I've had a tradition. So my, we have a couple of traditions. Number, the first tradition is I try anyway to have coffee with my wife every morning, just to kind of sit down, talk about it, talk about what we're going to do. So, and talk about the children, et cetera. But then at nighttime, we will sit down and we will have dinner together. Typically. I mean, sometimes we don't, but, but I would say four or five times a week. And that's a nice thing. And um, just because I think there's the, the relationship part of that, hey, we care enough about each other to give the courtesy of each other's company. And then also somebody's preparing a meal for us and then somebody's gonna clean up afterwards. It's a courtesy type thing that's learned and hopefully that's moved to outside the house. I, I think it is. And I think that um, what you described, you know, that's actually, you know, our course that we teach is our Introduction to Culinary Medicine course, which we teach at the university, um, which is how I wound up in Montana. Um, you know, it's divided into three parts. And the first part is exploring what is culinary medicine? Why do we need something that's more than just nice recipes to accompany a nutrition class? The second part is what you talked about, which is these non-ingredient influences in what we choose to eat and how that impacts our health. So those things that you're, you talk about doing, you know, starting the morning with a shared experience, even if it's just over you know, a coffee beverage, at the end of the day, having that shared meal, it's turning out that those are incredibly important uh, for healthy longevity, um, you know, as much as exercises. <clears throat> so <clears throat> these things um, are things that we try to, I try to instill into my students, you know, take away, you know, we're, we're not, we're much more than a collection of biomolecules, you know, we're human beings. And therefore, we need much more than a percent RDA, you know, to sustain us. You know, that's why we have the arts. That's why we have music. Uh, we have the culinary arts. Um, so, unfortunately, in medicine, and why I think there's a need for culinary medicine, 
to bridge these gaps is the medicine approach is the nutrition approach. And in Western medicine, the power of what I do is that we get rid of the variables. We divorce things um, and to focus and drill down. There is a clot in that artery. I've got to get it open. You know, and I deal with that mechanically and, uh, you know, with pharmacology and so on and so forth. A much tougher question is why did that clot form? Yes. Why did two people who live in the same house, um, and we, we've looked at studies with, with twins, for example, um, maybe even have the same genetics, take two very different paths, you know, in their in health. And so there are all these other variables and influences. And you know, one thing that, that comes from a, a lifetime in medicine is life is short. So, you know, yes. enjoy it. You know, a, a healthy diet is not about deprivation. Um, you know, as I like to say, there's no salvation in deprivation. <laughs> yeah. So th this is really fun stuff. I, I you know, you see with, as an intervention, intervention cardiologist, you're seeing these blocked up arteries and, and you, you know, I bet some of it's related to genetics. True. True. Right. And then, um, but then you, with these twin studies, you're able to see a lifestyle approach and see what, how that goes. But I don't want to ever see you ever, <laughs> you know, with tubes coming my way. So, and I don't, you know, none of the people listening to this, they definitely, you know, nothing personal. We want to see the chef side rather than the doctor side. Yeah, so you know, us out here. I mean, listen, I like a good steak. I like, um, I like having a glass of red wine every now and then. I like, um, you know, really tasty food. Um, you know, we've heard all this stuff about keto. We've heard stuff about protein. We've, we've heard about, you know, the, the different uh, Mediterranean diets, all this type mm -hmm. of stuff. I, you know, I know people go, should go read the books. <laughs> give, us, give us a little bit of a digest here. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's, it's actually not very complicated. So what um, we teach, which is, uh, as you can tell, our course is multidisciplinary. So we come at it from a lot of angles. Uh, but the, the bedrock of what we do is evidence-based. So when I practice medicine, it's based on the best available evidence. And that's what I use. And so it's the same with culinary medicine. So... Mm -hmm. For example, there's all these myths. You talk about a steak. The steaks get a bad rap the same way eggs got a bad rap because they're a source of fat, particularly saturated fat. Well, it turns out when we look at saturated fat, multiple meta-analyses, that saturated fat doesn't correlate to the risk of cardiovascular disease. Bombshell, right? Uh, but, but what does correlate to our risk of this chronic inflammation, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, really is the modern Western diet. And when we get to the, to the root there, what we find is that that is built on a platform of adulterated foods in the name of convenience. And so when, and then again, this, it's really no big surprise, right? When we get back to eating foods as mother nature intended for us, which means the way our bodies were designed to eat food, and not just our bodies, right? We have this gut microbiome that we're just learning about, less than a decade's worth of real research and study into that. But in terms of the cells that make up the organism that is you, you're around 100 trillion cells. It's estimated that for every human cell, there's about 1.3 to 1.5 bacterial cells that live in your body, on your body. 
And so these have a huge impact in our health because they co-evolve to co-metabolize the food we eat. So in a sense, in culinary medicine, we spend some time talking about this gut microbiome because we have to understand that when we consume food, we're actually a synergistic being. It's us, it's bacteria, there's yeasts, uh, protozoa, viruses, et cetera. And when we eat unnatural things, and I'll give you a quick example. So I remember being a cardiology fellow and reading these studies at Journal Club and that we would look at things and say, wow, when these studies came out and people used artificial sweeteners, so there's no calories now, you're cutting the sugar out, you're cutting the calories out, they have an increased rate of cardiovascular events, i.e. when they looked in these studies, more people compared to those who had you know, water or wine had heart attacks, they had worse heart attacks, they had more heart disease. You know, how could that be? We were taking the sugar out. This didn't impact with the human body. Now let's fast forward a couple of decades and what a, a study published in Nature looking at a mouse model showed is those artificial ingredients totally disrupt the bacteria. And in essence, it's like going into the inner city, burning it down and completely changing the neighborhood. So now, you know, instead of a home garden, you have, you know, Fukushima and nobody wants to eat the fresh vegetables from Fukushima, you know, cause they're radioactive. So you have this environment inside you that promotes inflammation, which leads to chronic disease. And so you're, you're, so you're basically, you're not, you suggest, hey, all of this artificial sugars, this diet, Pepsi's diet, all that kind of stuff is, is basically lab stuff and not grown stuff. And you're kind of, you're basically saying the lab stuff, leave that on the shelf. Let's get some back to the garden. Absolutely. And it's not just me saying that, you know, that's why. I think between food shaman and fallacy of the calorie, there's something like 1500 references to scientific journals. So this isn't, you know, Chef Dr. Mike's opinion. What Chef Dr. Mike has done is read those 1500, you know, articles and distill this information, but they're all footnoted in there. So you could say, I can't believe I can eat red meat. I can't believe saturated fat doesn't cause cardiology disease. Chef Dr. Mike, you're full of BS. Well, you know, here's the here's the the, the meta-analysis. You can read it yourself and, and and make your, you know, I'm a big believer in don't just tell me your opinion and kind of show me the fact, right? I'm from New York. You know, forget about it. Show me the study. And, well, listen, um, I'm a trial lawyer, and you know, facts, facts are very stubborn. And that's <laughs> that's you know, that's we want the facts. And so yep. so your next book is gonna be you're gonna be the Sherpa, the food Sherpa. You're gonna you're gonna say, listen, I looked at all this stuff for you. I looked at all these mountain passes and I'll tell you the right <laughs> path to go. It's this way, guys. If you want to go down that route, go ahead. There's a bunch of bodies down there. But you know, yep. the, the, the unique thing I think is cool is you're seeing people as a result of what they shouldn't eat. And this, and, the, and you, I'm assuming that you're big time into exercise too, right? Oh yeah. You know, as a, as a martial artist, um, you know, that I've done for many decades, um, and of course, living in Montana, you know, last week when it, when it wasn't snowing in June, um, <laughs> you know, I went out, you know, and spent four or five hours, you know, just hiking the mountains and, you know, and, and, and part of that is sort of understanding and listening to our bodies. As I said, you know, I had, uh, a lot of, you know, injuries growing up cause I wasn't that great an athlete, but I tried really hard. 
And as you get older, those things sometimes come back to, to haunt you in terms of joint aches and things. So, you know, I can't do high impact stuff that I used to do. You know, one of the reasons I got into the healing aspect of food is very personal. Um, you know, I went, uh, actually because I had an ingrown toenail, I went to see a podiatrist because I was getting married and I knew um, I, we were going to do some walking, you know, uh, we we're going to get married in the UK. My wife is, her roots are 100% Irish as well. And um, yeah, I said, well, you know, I don't want this to bother me. Let me go get it taken care of before we leave. So the, the podiatrist comes in and he looks at me and he look, it looks at the x-rays. He goes, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be right back. He goes out and comes in. He does the same. He does this like another couple of times. He comes and goes, can I ask you something? I was like, sure. He's like, do your feet hurt? And I was like, yeah, my feet hurt all the time. He's like, I don't even know how you're walking. He's like, you have no toe, toe joints. Uh, your ankle bones are worn down. And um, he recommended immediately I have a joint replacement. And I said, well, let's just do the operation to clean out the joint first. And then if I need it, I can always get a joint replacement. And that was over 20 years ago. And at that point, you know, I was eating the junk food because, um, you know, as an intern, as a resident, the, back in the day, you know, sure. there was free food everywhere and it was, it was crap. You know, it was all fast food. Um, I worked horrible hours. So you'd be, you know, going, you know, I, I did uh, medicine in Winston-Salem, which is the home of Krispy Kreme donuts. Yes. So when you finished, you know, finally at 5.30 in the morning, the red light was on, it was coffee, a couple glazed donuts, so you could go do, make rounds at 8 o'clock. Um, and I changed all that. I literally just stopped. And How old were you when you, when you changed? Uh, I was in my mid-20s. Um, and so, you, so, so you've been living this for decades? For decades, right. Um, and, Have you noticed a difference? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I actually um, feel better now in many ways than I did in my mid twenties, um, you know, back then, not giving up an ounce of flavor, you know, I shed some pounds, um, which made exercise easier. And, you know, even like today, um, I love bread. I'm a bread guy. Um, but Me too. I don't eat you, is bread. Okay. Oh, I, I love bread. But again, this goes back to our teachers in culinary medicine. I make my own, you know, it takes really about 15 minutes in the morning to make bread. Uh, I do it while my coffee's brewing. Um, it's it's great. It's a nat it, nature does the work. You know, you mix the stuff up, throw some yeast in, come back later. Nature's done all the work. But I don't eat bread uh, when I'm on the road and when I'm out, in, in, in other than some rare circumstances when I know how it's made. So you'll never see me, you know, going through a drive-through and and you know buying a, a sandwich or something. And when I eat, because if I eat that, I don't feel good. You know, I've learned to listen to my body. So um, I can tell, you know, good food from bad food. And many of the people who I talk with this, uh, about this with particularly, you know, patients, right? They'll write to me afterwards and they're like, doc, I don't know how I was eating what I was eating because now I can't even walk into a fast food restaurant. To me, it, with the food, it's very much like having patients who smoke. You know, they smoke two packs a day, they have a heart attack, we put a stent and say, you can't smoke anymore, you'll clot your stent off. And I'll see them, you know, back in six months and they're like, doc, I can't even walk into a room where somebody's smoking now because it's gross. You know, I feel awful when I smell that. I don't know how I sucked packs of cigarettes into my lungs. And it's the same way once you break 
the, the, the modern Western diet, which is constructed to be addictive, and you start rediscovering your taste buds, the joy, the simple joy of good food, which is like what your wife makes, you know, so you're, uh, you're, you're ahead of the curve there. But real food, once you have that, man, it's like flying first class. You can't go back behind the curtain. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. You know, um, a couple questions that I like to ask people. Um, obviously, you told us about one about really influential people in your life. So you told us about your mother. And I could tell that you were, you know, basically getting a little verklempt over that, which, you know, <laughs> To me, you know, I think of my mother, I start crying, I'm Irish. But is there other people in your life that, that basically kind of said, hey, that you looked at and said, this person made a real huge difference in my life? Yeah, you know, one, I would say, are, are my martial arts mentors. Um, you know, they, you know, they helped me save uh, myself from myself. Um, you know, they, uh, you know, there was uh, Hatsumi Sensei, uh, who shared his martial art uh, with us you know, Westerners, he opened it up, you know, from Japan. And, uh, you know, some of my mentors uh, there have been very influential. Um, you know, I started getting into martial arts uh, in my late teens um, because I couldn't do some of the uh, other sports that I wanted to do because uh, I had torn ligaments in my, in my ankles and so on and so forth. So I started getting into the, the martial arts and really went into it and that wonderful experience and also that exposure to the philosophy and kind of an eastern way of thinking in my formative years uh really shapes me uh you know and and how i approach things and and the things that i do so that was uh you a really a, a fundamental construct in determining kind of who i am today was uh, the martial arts. And it came at a time where I, I was what you might call today a bit of a rebellious youth. Sure. Um, you know, my, and in retrospect, my mom was a saint and you know, so was my dad for um, <laughs> not excommunicating me from the house at an, at an earlier age. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I, listen, I, I, I was that way too. I was, I don't know how my parents dealt with me, man. <laughs> I just, I can't figure it out. But so um, tell me, um, you, your first job was a dishwasher, you said? Uh, actually, well, my mom owned a, a plant shop. So um, I, from a young age, I was always, you know, if you want something, you go out and earn it. So, you know, I, was, I had newspaper routes. I, I went door to door selling vegetable and flower seeds. Um, my first kind of real job was my mom owned a plant shop. So I worked at, you know, her plant shop um, during high school. Uh, I also worked as a, on, on the grounds doing, you know, landscaping, cutting lawns uh, for a, a company. Uh, all that was before college. And then when I went to college, my first, you know, real independent job, I would say, kind of full time in the workplace was a dishwasher. So I literally sort of started at the bottom. I love it. I love it. And then tell me why Montana, buddy. I mean, so you, so you could go anywhere in the country, in the world, probably. You could yeah, probably and, go anywhere and, in the world. Um, well, I actually love Montana. And so uh, I was doing some uh, traveling work uh, up in Montana. And I met the dean of the college of, uh, at that time, it was the College of Health Science and Professions at the University of Montana. And by total happenstance, he had read my latest book. And so we got to talking and he invited me to participate at the university um, and eventually where we are today, you know, I'm teaching 
culinary medicine, uh, which I, I, is my passion now. And uh, at that time, we were in Florida. And so I, I was doing more and more with the university, which uh, I would tell folks is I actually do all that pro bono, uh, you know, just to get the word out. Because that's, you know, one of the things I teach in the class, which is something you have to have, I think, if you're going to be good at anything, but certainly if you're going to pursue food, which is a hard uh, industry and hard hit right now, and medicine is, is you know, passion. And this is obviously something I'm very passionate about. Um, so, you know, I, I love teaching. And so we came up here and visited and we had been living in Florida. And the only thing that Montana doesn't have is, is ocean. We have a big lake. I live uh, on the, you know, if you were in Butte, you know, further up north is Flathead Lake. So it's the, the biggest, deepest sort of loch type lake uh, west of the Mississippi. So we have that body of water, but outside of the ocean, I absolutely love Montana because uh, I love the outdoors. I love nature. Um, I said, I head out my backyard and the next civilization I'll see is somewhere in Idaho. <laughs> One of my buddies lives up there um, <clears throat> in Great Falls. And, um, you know, I was, I was talking to him recently and I, and I said to him, I said, hey, uh, what's the best part about Montana? And he says, I can't, there's, there's, we don't have enough time. He, so he, he loves to go fishing up there. He loves to golf. He likes the hunting. My cousin, um, uh, my cousin, Kevin, he leads, um, he's kind of a, a guide. He's been doing it for 20 years, you know, how to hunt in, in Montana. Wow. It's just such a beautiful place. It is, but I, I'm sorry to tell everyone who's listening, we're full. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. You know, um, I went to school in uh, undergrad in, in Portland, Oregon, and um, then I, I practiced law there for four years, and we were always telling people, hey, it's full. There's no more, yeah. you know, but it didn't stop the people coming north. They kept coming and coming and coming and coming. So, and, you know, you guys got all the movie stars out there now. Yeah, well, and, and great, you talk about Great Falls. That's the home of Phil Jackson, Chicago Bulls. That's right. That's right. And, um, yeah, he writes some pretty good stuff. I mean, I... I like reading his stuff, and I I kind of enjoyed that whole uh, miniseries during the COVID thing that uh, was kind of fun to, to watch. Oh, yeah, yeah, and and you think about, you know, his growing up in Great Falls and being exposed to the Native American culture yes. is what shaped him and his philosophy as a coach, you know, which allowed him to have those personalities of, you know, a Dennis Rodman and a Michael Jordan and be able to make that a cohesive unit, so... You know, it's it's all these, you know, little kind of details that, that go into the mix um, that are kind of fascinating sometimes when we look in, in retrospect. To me, those are all the, you know, again, to get back to food, you know, it's when you approach food that way, right? It's these, it's these little things. It's that little extra bit of seasoning. It's that little extra time you take to trim something. Um, you know, I always say, and, and it applies particularly in medicine, the difference between good and great is attention to detail. You know, there's one thing you mentioned passion, but you know what? There can be a lot of people about, and I tell this to young people. I say you can be passionate about something, but you you better know what the hell you're doing. You know, and, and you know that's the thing. You mean that's the thing that's really cool that we're, we're talking about is you've read the 1500 studies, you actually see the the physical bodies of people that have their life's been crushed by their diet, and you actually have 
you, you know how to create good food. So that I mean, you need to get your message out, pal. So I'm going to help you. So Thank if, you. if anything that I can do, let, let me know. I'm hopeful that you will come back on the show down the road and we'll talk about all the different communities that we're penetrating because that's the thing. You know, I think I live near a really big city, Chicago. Okay, I'm in the suburbs. And I think that everybody in America, because I, I absolutely love this country. I, I, like I said, I'm the ninth of 10 kids. I think at the Zenith, my dad made 18 grand a year. Wow. Um, it, you know, uh, growing up, we did not have good food. Um, and uh, mom, you, you don't, you know, don't, she won't feel bad because she knows that she, she liked good food too. But, but the thing that, um, that I would really like to see in America is that everybody gets to taste that first class food that you're talking about. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's more expensive. It just means that maybe we have to have deli different delivery systems, different ways of approaching the food and different ways of access to the food. So if there's any way that I can get on that bandwagon, uh, chef, doctor, whatever you like to be called, I'm in, man. And I'm, if I have to come to Montana to visit you, I'm in. Well, well, thanks. I appreciate that. And, and you're, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I did something uh, in Florida. We did a, a series on a, on a show there, daytime TV. And I took these, I guess we used to call them food stamps, but I guess it's called snap now uh, budget and showed, you know, how do you eat for a week on that with this great food? And so I bought an organic chicken. Well, that's twice as much as a regular chicken. But it's, it's all about the, the culinary aspect. So when I ran the professional kitchen, food costs are our biggest cost. So you, you learn, you don't waste anything. So when I break that chicken down and have a carcass, that makes chicken stock. You know, I'm not paying six bucks for a container of some celebrity chicken stock. I'm doing it for six cents. And it's better and better for you. Uh, people, you know, are spending all this money now for bone broth, right? That's nothing more than than the stock we make because we it's vegetables and bones. It's what we call the trim. So when I cut that carrot top off, you don't throw it away. You save it. You save those onion peelings. And it goes into, you know, a stock pot with that chicken carcass. You add some water, you come back in a couple hours, and it's magic. It's culinary magic. And it's also culinary medicine. Um, so those kind of ways to approach sourcing your ingredients in an economical fashion that's a that's a big part of it because you know people say to me well I don't, I don't have a doctor's salary i can't shop at whole foods i'm on a budget how do i do it lots of ways to do it that's how we run restaurants um because they still got to turn do, a profit where do people look where do people look for that online where can they find that that uh that thing you put together for for folks that that oh, gosh, need you're... that need that don't have the money to, to buy that type of thing, but they, they're on Snap and they need to get those type of ingredients. Where can they go? Uh, be the sure well, we're Well, we're actually revamping our website because we're launching our online course that I teach at the, at the university will be online for the, in, for the general public in a not, you know, have to enroll at the University of Montana uh, kind of way. And so we're revamping, but if they go to Chef Dr. Mike, chefdrmike.com, um, there's resources uh, that we're in the midst of putting back up. And some of those are little videos. So, you know, for example, I did one during COVID, I called them, you know, practical culinary medicine. Uh, we belong to 
a CSA, a farm co-op. And so every week I go down and get my fresh vegetables. I don't know what they're going to be. And one week they gave me beets. These beautiful organic beets, absolutely delicious. Well, since it's an organic farm, you get everything. So you get the stems and the greens. And a lot of times people will throw those away. So I took those beet greens and made a pesto uh, with some fresh ciabatta bread that I baked up and really good olive oil, super simple. But I had a whole, you know, another meal out of what a lot of people would just throw away. And that's how you extend those things. And so that's, you know, we did a little video on that. So all those resources will be on the website. Uh, just bear with us. Uh, we're in the midst of, of revamping everything. That's chefdrmike.com? Yeah, chefdrmike.com. Okay, Chef Dr. Mike, so um, I'm going to hold you to that, um, but also, um, I, I got to say, I, I got to believe my son, who's, he just turned 20, he's going into his junior at Marquette, he's thinking about food all the time as far as the <laughs> right way to make it, all that kind of thing, and maybe he sees his role model here and <laughs> says, hey, listen, I want to be like be like Mike, you know what I mean? That's, that's, that's the thing. You're the new be like Mike guy. I hope I don't get sued for trademark on that one. Buddy. But, uh, but uh, this has been a, a really cool interview, buddy. Thanks so much oh, for uh, taking the time. I, I, I totally appreciate it, mate. Um, it, yeah, it's been, it's been great. I'd love to come back and I appreciate you helping me, you know, uh, spread the word out there. So no, we, we, we want will. everybody to eat like Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we definitely want that. And, and, um, but don't, uh, I hope you don't retire. I hope you just keep going at it. And, um, this, you know, this isn't work. There's, yeah, there's no way I retired. This isn't work. You know, I mean, I, I love getting out, um, and speaking for folks. I love showing folks how to cook. Um, so, you know, uh, we're, we're actually working to maybe put, try to put together, uh, you know, if, if uh, the media ever opens back up and we can travel and do things again, you know, get out there, uh, get some things, you know, on the, on the small screen, the Netflix type screen, you know, we'd love to, to, to do those, whether they be, you know, documentaries or, or going around. So we've got all these things kind of um, in the pot, as it were. Uh, so, so yeah, stay tuned. We're, we're, we're working on getting this out. This is, I think this is important. How many, how many culinary medicine courses are there throughout the country? Well, it's interesting. So if you Google it, I think you get like 23 million hits. Um, but they, there's very few, uh, that are taught at an academic level. So obviously ours is a vetted course. Uh, it ranges all the way from really nothing more than nutrition. And they give you some tasty kale recipes, you know, all the way to uh, stuff that, uh, you know, sort of borders on, um, you know, fringe elements that, where they're not really paying any attention, you know, yeah. to what the science is, is telling us. Final question. My, my family watches these cooking shows, all of them. I mean, so <laughs> Top Chef, all this type of stuff. The, the mean guy, what's his name? Uh, Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay. All these guys, which, you know, my, my kids say I look like Gordon Ramsay. I say, come on, <laughs> I'm not that mean a soul. Anyway, um, they, they watch all that stuff. What are the, what are the ones that you, are your go-tos that you like to watch? Oh, um, you know, I like, I, I like watching them all, too. I try to learn something from each of them. Um, you know, some of my favorites, um, I love Gordon Ramsay. And because, um, great quick story there, people say, what's my go-to recipe? You know, what do I know that I can cook really well? Um, and it's risotto. And it's because I cooked it in a Gordon Ramsay restaurant. So uh, I was with my wife at Petrus, 
which at the time was owned by Gordon Ramsay. Uh, the head chef was Marcus Waring, another brilliant chef. Uh, they weren't there when we were there on a, on a weekend. It was Chef Andy and Chef Tristan, and we had a chef's table. And so they would come out and they'd tell us what they were cooking for us. And I was obviously conversing with them. And at one point, you know, Chef Andy goes, you seem to know a lot about food. And I was like, yeah, you know, I know a little. And he's like, can, can you cook? And I was like, yeah, you know, I can kind of cook. I mean, this is a Michelin, two Michelin star restaurant. He's wow. like, can you cook risotto? And so I was like, yeah, of course I can cook risotto. And he goes, good, come on back. And I was like, excuse me? So they threw an apron on, they put me on the line and I had to make a black truffle risotto in a two-star Michelin restaurant. So I'm a back there, just like, just like the people on Hell's Kitchen, right? So, and I hear, how much longer on that risotto? I was like, five minutes, chef. You know, and I'm, doing, and I'm, I'm there and I'm cooking and I go, risotto on the pass. And then I go back and my station was kind of around the little corner. So I go back to my station and then I peek around the corner to watch. And he's looking at me and he puts the spoon up, tastes it. He goes, send it. And I was like, okay, if I made a, a, a black truffle risotto that passed the, made the pass in a two Michelin star Gordon Ramsay restaurant, I'm okay with that. So, so Gordon, though it wasn't Gordon, he always holds a soft spot in my heart because sure. you know, he sort of gave me a level of confidence in my cooking uh, with that that I carry with me today. Well, well, listen, we I definitely will be asking you back, and I appreciate your time. And sorry for the technical difficulties at the beginning, buddy. Oh, no it worries. Was, yeah, and uh, you know what? I, 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 you know, one of the rites of passage of my kids is they get to drive through Montana. It's twelve hours. <laughs> When they turn 15, so I'm I'm hoping that my daughter Nora, who just turned 16, will be able to do that, and then Johnny when he's 11, and maybe we'll make a side turn and visit you. Yeah, let let us know. We're in Missoula at the university, so. All right, take let's care. Let us know. Thank you for listening to the opening statement with Joe Shannon. You can find us on the internet at shannonlawgroup.com, or telephone our office at 312. 578-9501. Have a terrific day.